Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, guys, it's good to have you back with us another week. Um, we've got a rather large series coming. It's uh, a contentious topic, but uh, I think we're hoping to just bring a little bit of uh, light and, um, and, and some information on them. And, and the topic is Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, and so this will take up the next uh, few weeks with maybe a couple things in between there. It's a big topic, isn't it, brother? And um, everyone is very easily on the same page, obviously, here, right? <laughs> you know, I, I just uh, just started uh, taking a brief break from Twitter, knowing that this is the next topic. I might have to extend that break for a while just because of the way this uh, really ruffles a lot of people's feathers. But yeah, this is a really hot topic. I think it's, um, it's an often misunderstood topic, and especially for those who um, attack, uh, attack Calvinism. You, you know, and it's not even a word that... Um, that I, I almost never use this word from the pulpit. Um, I, I don't talk about Calvin unless I'm quoting him in, in some kind of way. Yeah. And in talking about my theology, it, it never comes up. But I do prescribe to a framework of God's grace that I think is consistent with the five points of, of Calvinism, but it often gets twisted and misunderstood whenever the topic comes up um, over social media or in conversations with people that have um, only a straw man understanding of it and, and not a, and, and they haven't uh, done the research themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, as we get started here, it will, we'll probably have, you know, folks from both sides, uh, those who think they're Arminian and those who would say they're Calvinists listening to the podcast. And, you know, I would just ask that um, you kind of set your feelings aside um, and let the Bible speak for itself. Right. And, uh, it, you know, our, our goal isn't to convert anyone uh, to be followers of John Calvin. I mean, that, that should right. be no preacher's goal. The goal is that we are just uh, conforming to what Scripture teaches and says. Um, and, and so, it, you know, it's like with everything else. When you approach doctrines, if we come to it with the mindset that I'm absolutely right, everything that I believe and understand, then you're uh, inevitably going to insert or eisegete your feelings and your presuppositions into the text. And that's right. what we don't want to do. No faithful Christian, um, regardless of what side you ascribe to, should be doing that. And so, you know, as someone who ascribes to the doctrines of grace, which is what we often refer to Calvinism as, in my preference, um, this text, I still try to leave um, my feelings aside and first ask the question, what does the text say? Uh, we can only do that in limited capacity because we're humans, but that still ought to be our heart attitude when we approach the text, right? And and this is one of those areas where largely people believe what they believe with a very strong emotional backing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not only what does the text say, but what does all the text say, right? I mean, we yeah, we absolutely. believe in all of Scripture from full Genesis all the way, yeah, the full counsel of God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And, and I think oftentimes when these discussions come up, you know, a lot of people will emphasize certain verses. Um, you know, for instance, John 3.16, 
that um, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever, and they will put a lot of stress on the whosoever, whosoever mm-hmm. believes in him will not perish but have um, eternal life. And they'll, they'll stress the whosoever part to show that, look, it says here, whoever chooses God, whoever confesses Jesus Christ, whoever um, is willing to receive this message, those individuals will be saved. And then oftentimes the exercise is just showing verses that are like that over and over again. Um, and, and when I try to portray other verses that show about uh, that, that really emphasize the sovereignty of God, how God um, foreknew us before the foundation of the world, um, how he, he, he chose us. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with him. Um, so it often turns into a, well, look at these verses and look at these verses. And then I think what we have to understand is that to have a robust theology, you want to have an understanding that is able to explain both sides. And then so I think right off the bat, uh, right off the top, I think what I really want to emphasize before we even get into any other point is that you can affirm both the sovereignty of God. And when we say sovereignty, it means God is the highest in authority and he's in total control. Well, you can affirm both the sovereignty of God as it relates to salvation. And I think of Romans 8, 28 to 30. And also affirm that man has a responsibility. Yeah, he has a responsibility yeah. to respond the right way, um, and, uh, and and we can affirm both, and and not have to turn this into an either or. But as we affirm both, one of those two ideas must be supreme. Yeah, and and the the yeah. supreme idea is the sovereignty of God. But we'll talk more about that as we go through. Yeah, and it's a great point that we 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 do theology in the context of the whole counsel of God, right? Um, and that's important because, like you said, people bring up that passage, but then they forget the passage in John where Jesus himself talks about the fact that he actually died, and he doesn't say for the world, he says for my sheep. Yeah. Right? And so we have some defining of terms, but we aren't defining the terms. We're letting scripture do the defining. And so we'll get into some of those things, but that's a really great point. And again, I think we approach the subject with uh, the heart that says, whatever, whatever God says is true, that's what I want to believe. Um, and, and that may mean that I have to adjust some of my doctrine theology. In fact, I find it quite interesting, and, and I, I think even I, I see this fault in a, in a lot of guys in our own circles, um, that the idea that we, we, we know the doctrine so well um, that we, we assume we're going to agree with everything we come to, the, we come to see in the text, no. which presumes that you have all knowledge perfectly. Now, we, we may not say it that way, um, but if you approach the text already with an unwillingness to have your doctrine adjusted, then I think the assumption is you understand everything perfectly. Um, now, we certainly should be firm in what we believe and what we see in Scripture. I'm, I'm not saying walk around afraid to take a position, um, but we should always approach the Scripture with humility, and I guess that's really what I'm speaking of, right? And, and humility says what God says is true, um, and if it contradicts what I believe, uh, then my responsibility is to change what I believe, right? Whatever that might be. So, if we read in the Scripture uh, you know, and I all of a sudden discovered that it was quite clear that uh, God says the the sky is purple instead of blue. Um, contrary to what I see, what I think, what I feel, or what I have known before, then it would be my responsibility to ask a series of questions and then perhaps adjust what I believe as true. 
maybe that's a poor illustration, but um, I was trying to not touch on any hot topics with that illustration. <laughs> so I, I think that's an okay one. But uh, so let's just kind of jump in. I know this is an introductory podcast to the series we're doing. So guys are like, get on with it already. Uh, but uh, let's just talk about some of the misperceptions uh, of Calvinism, for instance. And I think you made the point. All right. Uh, but let's reiterate it. Yeah. We're going to use the term Calvinism. We're going to use the term Arminianism. Um, Calvinism uh, is just simply a word to describe a framework for understanding what scripture teaches. We use the term Calvinism because John Calvin, um, and specifically in his institutes, if you haven't read that, you should. Um, it's, it's quite a lengthy work, but uh, he, he's probably one of the guys who, at least in more modern times, described and exegeted the text in an understandable way. Uh, more full way than just about anyone else. So we're not talking about following John Calvin. Nobody's following John Calvin. John Calvin wasn't following himself, right? His teachings uh, came from scripture. We're not saying that we agree with every single thing he believed or taught. I don't even know everything he believed or taught, and I've read quite a bit of his work. Um, but when we use the term that's an argument that often comes up, right? I mean, one of the first things, well, I don't follow John Calvin, I follow Jesus. Uh, so let's just get that one out of the way. It's just a way to understand uh, kind of your framework and how you view uh, theological positions in Scripture, right? Yeah, th this seems to come up, I would say, at least nine out of ten times whenever um, in social media um, that, that the topic of Calvinism comes up. Just because you have the ism at the end or you have the IST at the end of Calvinist, um, we're not talking about a man who's being worshipped. We're not talking about a man who's being followed. And, and I think connected to this has to be the understanding that just because we prescribe to Calvinism or we might classify ourselves as Calvinists, which, by the way, once again, I never go yeah. out of my way to call myself a Calvinist, but it can be helpful if people are trying to understand where are you in terms of the, the doctrines of grace and whatnot. It's, it's a word that you can throw out there to help quickly identify if someone um, believes a certain framework or not. <clears throat> and, and in this case, I do. Um, but connected to this idea of Calvinism is, is this. Just because we might be a Calvinist or that we prescribe to Calvinism, it doesn't mean we support everything John Calvin has ever done. Yeah. We don't, it doesn't mean we support everything that he's ever done or everything he's ever taught or everything he's ever said, every position he's ever taken. No, there, there are no two people that I know of, at least amongst well-known theologians, pastors, whether in the past or present, there are no two people I know that agree with each other on every single point of doctrine throughout the scriptures. To your point, nobody has the complete market cornered on orthodoxy. Yeah. Now, that may, in one sense, sound a little bit discouraging, um, but on the other hand, you can get people from a lot of different denominations. You can get Presbyterians, you can get Baptists, you can get non-denominational folks who take the same approach to interpreting Scripture, and on the most important items, you will find that they agree completely on the most important stuff. You know, so we have the exact same gospel, we have the exact same view of God, uh, of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the work that he accomplished, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, um, all those things. The, the things that are so crucial to undergird the gospel itself, complete agreement. There are secondary topics, which does not mean unimportant, but secondary topics, meaning that if you disagree on this, you can disagree on this without affecting your understanding of the gospel. 
you know, those secondary topics are areas where, you know what, we will get some disagreements. And then there are tertiary topics um, uh, above and beyond that. So, yeah, <clears throat> Calvinism doesn't mean we follow Calvin. We do not worship him. I don't even have a picture of him anywhere in my house or anywhere in my church. Um, I have never prayed to him, um, never thought about him as whenever I go before God. And in my services, my goal is for the entire congregation to be worshiping God the Father and God the Son uh, through the power of God the Spirit, and, and that they alone should be the object of our worship. Not a man, um, not, not any framework, not anything else aside from God alone. Yeah, and it, you know, it seems almost strange that we have to start with this, but as you said, I mean, nine times out of 10, that's one of the first comments you get, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you follow John. I, I, I don't follow John Calvin. I follow Jesus. Well, we don't follow John Calvin either. But remember, the Apostle Paul made the statement, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Yes. Um, and, and that is the mindset. And, and, and so you can't negate the, uh, the reality behind following someone's godly biblical example, because Paul even gave us that. And Paul wasn't saying, worship me, right? Uh, Paul was saying, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, um, the things that you see in me that are Christ-like, that are godly, that are biblical, do those things. And so we would approach these kind of things uh, in the same way. And you make a good point. You know, in, in my church, um, I, you know, we have a church plant, right? So um, we don't go around trying to, you know, convert people to Calvinism. Uh, when we preach the gospel, when we evangelize, we want to see people come to Christ. We don't use the term. I encourage my people not to use the term. Well, and, and why is that? Well, one, because it has such a negative st stigma. Um, I, I think it's unwise um, unless you're around people who understand and know what those terms and doctrines mean. Because when it comes down to it, all we're talking about is biblical doctrine. Um, so you, you rarely ever have to use the term. Now, if I meet another pastor, um, I, 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 I'm going to ask him questions that I wouldn't ask the everyday person, right? Because I can eliminate an hour conversation, eliminate an hour conversation in just a few questions, uh, yeah. and you know, and and you can save time that way. Uh, and, and you've well spoken on that. But so let's kind of get into a little bit. And I thought we would talk a little bit about some of the initial common reactions to Calvinism. We've mentioned one already, and that's a big one. Um, it, it's almost, sometimes I think that's a disingenuous uh, rebuttal, right? Mm. Um, because I've never heard of anyone praying to or worshiping John Calvin. Yeah. Um, I, I had to look around and see if I had a picture of him anywhere in my office. I don't, but I do have a picture of Charles Spurgeon, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I certainly don't worship him, but uh, I, I appreciate his ministry. Um, and uh, so, but anyway, um, one, of, one of the other uh, objections is that Calvinism produces the frozen chosen, <laughs> as it were. Um, yeah. in, in other words, kind of this lifeless, zealless Christianity. Um, that that's a big one that's often stated, um, and that's very interesting because the the presupposition is that if someone professes to be a Christian and they don't act just like you do outwardly, then there must be something wrong with their doctrine. Well, what's wrong with judging that way? Yeah, they, you know we. <laughs> There's so much um, because, I mean, first of all, to try to judge it off zeal um, or the level of emotion, it's a very subjective test, right? 
um, what is enough for you. And even as we look at um, some of the preachers that we may enjoy listening to, and I'll just pull out um, two great examples of two men who are good friends, but very different preaching styles. You, you take someone like a, a John MacArthur and you take like a Steve Lawson, right? Both of them, dear friends, there, if you listen to one, you'll find that the theology of one very closely matches the theology of the other. They um, they speak at conferences together. Um, Steve Lawson is a very frequent uh, guest at Grace Community Church. Um, so great, uh, great teaches at the there. seminary. Yeah, teaches at the seminary, um, but very different approaches. I mean, when you listen to John MacArthur, uh, especially now, John MacArthur is he's um, he, he's passionate, but he's controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people they listen to John and they actually think he sounds monotone. Um, because he, he just has a very relaxed kind of delivery. He's going through it. He's explaining the passage. Whereas you get to someone like Steve Lawson, Steve Lawson has often been described as a rocket ship, right? He he takes off and never comes back down, right? He, he's constantly, constantly up there. And so you have two different uh, approaches. One, there's um, a very... Um, there's a there's a very strong expression of zeal and passion, and the other one is more reserved. But I wouldn't say one is more zealous than the other. Yeah. You know, in fact, when you look at John MacArthur's ministry, it's hard to argue against fifty plus years at the same church. Yeah. And by the way, you know, those accusations of people that worship John Calvin because they're a Calvinist, we get the same thing with John MacArthur, right? Yeah. yeah. But as you mentioned, Paul said, um, "Imitate me as I imitate Christ." And so we see that example in people like like a John MacArthur. So yeah, you want to be careful about making those kinds of judgments just based upon the level of emotion yeah. that you see on the outside. Now, if you're saying not you specifically, but those who bring those uh, those those accusations, if they're saying that it produces just a love of doctrine but not of any kind of practice, well, that's an issue because um, Calvinism. Um, just as any other framework that we would consider biblically based, needs to consider the fact that the Bible calls us to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. But what's interesting is that even the, when we think about the New Testament, what was the one church that probably had the most solid teachers and the longest exposure to solid doctrine of all the churches that we know in the New Testament? Probably the church in Ephesus. Paul would spend... um, two and a half to three years there on his missionary journey. Um, Timothy would end up ministering there. John would be there, um, the apostle. So you had a lot of great teaching. I mean, if there was a New Testament version of what I'll say Grace Community Church where John MacArthur is, it's probably Ephesus. But when you get to the book of Revelation, guess what? They're first commended uh, for their understanding of doctrine, for rebuking false teachers, for for being able to discern those differences. Um, But they are also rebuked for having lost, left their first love, yeah. right? So just because, um, just because it can lead to people who are maybe not as zealous as as they could be for for Jesus Christ and the gospel and whatnot, it doesn't it doesn't refute the importance that needs to be placed upon understanding the Word of God correctly. Yeah. But yeah. even from experience, I'll just add this: some of the most passionate people I know are in our camp. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, even if you wanted a, uh, a more stark contrast, which um, uh, Dr. Lawson is very animated for sure when he preaches, but go to Paul Washer and John MacArthur. I, I mean, those, th- those are two extremes in terms of outward display in the pulpit, both doctrine solid. I, and yeah. anyone that knows either one of their ministries could not accuse 
either one of not being zealous for the things of God. But Paul Washer is a, a very emotional right. preacher, right? Um, and uh, John MacArthur is a very metered preacher. Um, and he's changed over the years, right? If you listen to his uh, his sermons yeah. in the late seventies. Yeah, when he, he was younger, he was he would, yep. He preaches a lot like a lot like uh, most younger preachers do. You know, your your speed is yeah. times two, and as you get older, you slow. Yeah, I think I think I think he referred to himself as a, as a chipmunk the way he preached uh, earlier <laughs> in his life. Yeah, and so we have to be careful about that. And so, and but here here's the greater problem. Um, you're you're judging um, the truthfulness of a doctrine just based on what you perceive outwardly. We yeah. should never be deciding doctrine on things like that, uh, wholly on things like that, right? Yeah. So that's one thing. The next thing that common comes up, and, th and these are mostly connected, right, is that uh, Calvinists produced little or no missionary zeal. Well, I'll just jump right back to Paul Washer. Um, Paul Washer yeah. subscribes to the doctrines of grace, uh, you know, Calvinism, and runs a... Uh, very zealous uh, missionary organization. I mean, that's what he does. Heart Cry is a missionary organization, and um, and they're no joke. They go into places that people won't go into, um, and and they find faithful pastors, believers, help equip them, train them, natives in their own country, and that's what they give their time to. You can go on their website and see they're all over the world. Um, so you 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 can't tell me that um, Calvinism, you know, produces kind of a dead faith. No. Uh, because that's just not true, and and again, I think this is um, I, I, we have to. It's appropriate um, to recognize that there are individuals who would claim to be one or either side who really aren't. Right? Yeah. I can find guys who uh, would abs uh, would ascribe to more Arminian theology who really have no idea what that is, and they don't even fit in that, although you know, they say they would. And you can find guys who say they're Calvinists, and their, their life doesn't reflect the doctrines that we would put in, um, you know, in Calvinistic views. So you can find that, but it, you have to, again, ask what does Scripture teach, um, not base the doctrine on an individual's life, right? I mean, please do not look at my life and um, decide that what the Bible teaches is exactly what you see in me, because I am a fallen, broken uh, vessel that needs God's grace day to day, um, maybe even more so uh, it, being a pastor, constantly having to uh, wrestle with things and deal with things. And, you know, I, I, I pray that I, I often preach uh, in some sense as a hypocrite. Uh, I, I preach every week predominantly to myself. Uh, and most pastors, I think, will tell you that. Um, so we can't judge the the biblical accuracy of a doctrine just on an individual's profession, right? But we have the habit of doing that kind of thing. So that's one of the common objections: is not having missionary zeal. Um, and and yes, and you already hinted on this, Eki. But um, if what you believe about the Bible produces a stale Christianity, then you aren't really believing what's in the Bible, regardless of what you profess. Um, and, and, and so, again, we can't judge what's in Scripture necessarily just based on an individual. Um, it is very true in some sense that um, you, 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 do what, you, you, you do what is being taught more than what you're seeing the person teaching do. 
because the Bible will always be more perfect than the teacher, right? And so I preach and you preach, we preach every Sunday what's perfectly right and good. And every Sunday, you and I both fail at, at doing that perfectly, right? Um, so, How dare you? <laughs> I'm just trying to not be the only one. Uh, no, you're, you're more perfect. No, you're absolutely, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, um, our knowledge is always higher than our practice. Um, and that's true for every Christian I can think of. And, uh, and, and our goal is to try to close that gap, obviously. We want to close that gap and have our practice catch up to our knowledge. But yeah, that's a reality everywhere, but does not excuse a lack of practice. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's just not something that if you really understand the doctrines of grace, it should produce. Um, it, if, if someone, if their belief, uh, if it produces in them uh, this kind of genuine lack of, I'll say zeal, but lack of concern or love for the things of God, um, if, if they have no heart to see people come to Christ, uh, missions doesn't mean they're a missionary, um, but if they have no heart for evangelism in some form or fashion, then they do not believe in what we call Calvinism. Yeah. Um, they, they just don't. Uh, at least in those areas, they've missed um, the, the, the teaching. So an, another, another thing that comes up is the religion is that Calvinism is a religion of the head and not the heart. Right, so we're dealing with a lot of your first immediate surfacey objections. Yeah, yeah. You've already touched on this um, right earlier, but uh, but this is one of the rejections, uh, the objections. And I would say, well, first of all, what do you what do you mean by that? What, what yeah. do you mean that it's a religion of of the head and not the heart? Um, are, are you, you know, if you're objecting to Calvinism, are you willing to say that uh, all Calvinists are unbelievers? That's the implication. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mean that, don't make that statement. Um, because if your religion is only in your head, by definition, you, you have a false religion. Um, plenty of atheists know the Bible better than plenty of Christians, but the atheist isn't saved, right? Yeah. Because he's, he doesn't have a new heart. He's not a new creation. His heart's still a heart of stone, so to speak. Um, and so to uh, accuse a whole group of people that is, you know, unless that's what you mean, and then we have another conversation um, now, I think what people mean, again, goes back to emotions, right? That, that's really what they're trying to express. You don't have as much emotion, and you seem to be more concerned with uh, doctrine. I, I don't need jo- doctrine. I just need Jesus. This is really yeah. where this is coming from, right? Well, let's just talk about that. W- w- what do you think when someone says, well, I, I don't need doctrine. I just need Jesus, yeah, and that's uh, that reminds me of a story I heard a while back of someone saying that uh, in the crowd, and I think it was Albert Muller that was telling the story that someone stood up and um, said, I don't care about doctrine, all I need is Jesus Christ, and uh, he made the very good uh, point that you can't even say the words Jesus Christ without making a doctrinal statement about who Jesus Christ is. And and so, to, to say that you don't need doctrine, well, well, what does the Great Commission tell us? The Great Commission tells us to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's a part of the Great Commission that is often overlooked. It's not the baptizing and the evangelizing part. It's the teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you part. And how can you teach people to observe all that Jesus Christ has commanded if you don't care about doctrine? And yep. by the way, in the Greek, the word behind doctrine literally means teaching. Right? Yep. So we're yep. we're talking about what the Bible teaches. We're talking about what God's word teaches. And in fact, um, I, I've been preaching through the book of John. And what we see in the book of John, there's a heightened amount of opposition 
starting from chapter 5. In fact, 5.18 in, in the book of John, that's where it's revealed that they were seeking to kill Jesus because he was making God the Father, himself equal to God the Father. But you, you see a continued heightened of, of this kind of opposition between these two sides. And in chapter 6, it starts off with the feeding of the 5,000, which is really closer to fifteen or 20,000 people being fed. And then by the end of the chapter, most of those who had previously called themselves disciples of Jesus Christ had left. Well, why did they leave? They left because they rejected his teaching. They didn't like what they were hearing from him. And so, if you're a person that says that I only need Jesus, I don't need any of this doctrine or teaching stuff, well, you've basically put yourself into the camp um, that uh, of people that are just going to walk away from him. Because Jesus Christ said, you cannot, uh, there's no way that you can follow him and reject his word. You have to be able to be someone who keeps his word, and then his word is inseparable from God's word. Jesus Christ is inseparable from God the Father in the sense of if you believe one, you must believe the other. <clears throat> and if you believe one, you must follow them. You must follow their commandments. So, yeah, to, to make that kind of statement, I think it's, um, it's self-defeating because if all you have is Jesus, what makes your faith unique, what makes you different from any other faith or religion um, around the world? You know, and, and but you can't even answer that question without getting into what the Bible teaches. Well, and and I think understanding that the word doctrine quite literally means teaching yep. um, is important because you couldn't even come to Christ without someone teaching you or giving right. you doctrine, it, right? I mean, you yep. could know nothing about your need for salvation without getting doctrine, because that is the only way it comes. Um, and, and so, yeah, to say that, um, well, and, you know, by implication, you're saying that I don't need the Bible, because the, the, the Bible is an entire book of God teaching us about who he is, about who Christ is, about man, um, about sin, about God, and how we should live and walk in the Christian life. So, if you throw away doctrine, you, you throw away your Bible, but beyond that, I mean, how many times in Scripture are, are we specifically told to guard our doctrine? It, the whole book of Jude at the end, he, he points to um, defending the faith as the apostles did what? Taught it, right? Yeah. Um, in 1 Timothy 4.16, uh, the apostle Paul is charging Timothy with the same thing. And listen to this. I mean, this is how closely related doctrine is uh, to the Christian walk in life. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Mm. Wrong doctrine can mean the yeah. difference between believing in Jesus of the Bible and believing in the Jesus the Mormons profess. Yeah, and even if you think about the temptation of Christ, um, I just said this this past Sunday, when it comes to Satan, Satan knows the scriptures better than we do, right? And, and as he was tempting Jesus Christ, he was tempting Jesus Christ with the scriptures. And can you imagine if point. you are, if you're a person who says, I don't care about doctrine, I just care about Christ. Can you imagine if you were in the place of Jesus Christ being tempted by Satan, and he's giving you the scriptures, how would you respond? Would you actually correctly be able to rebuke him? Or would you hear those words and think, you know what, you're right, I'm going to follow you. Of course, no one would say that they would willingly follow Satan, though that's exactly what the world does, they don't realize it. But if you were in that position, you would, you would be in no position to be able to know whether what you're hearing is actually correct or not. And, and this is the scheme of Satan. He seeks to undermine the truth 
back to the Garden of Eden uh, when he was in the form of the serpent speaking to Eve, asking Eve, did God really say? And goes on to say, God did not really mean that you're going to die, calling God a liar. And so if, if all you do is care about Christ, but you don't care about God's word, guess what? You have no protection against the schemes of Satan. You're, you're in a position that you can easily be tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. And that's in uh, Ephesians chapter four, talking about how Jesus Christ gave to the church um, pastors and, and teachers for the equipping of the saints to the building up of the body of Christ. And then verse 16 says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed uh, to and fro by every wave of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. So that the way that you engage in the spiritual war is by your understanding of God's word. And if you say that you don't care about God's word, guess what? You have no equipping for the spiritual war. Yeah. And if you have if you have no desire to be equipped for the spiritual war, I have to kind of I have to kind of wonder if you really have the Holy Spirit working within you. Because guess what? The Holy Spirit's ministry to us started with the Word of God. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great points. I mean, it, all three times uh, Jesus said in his rebuttal, "For it is written." Yeah. Um, you know, in other words, the doctrine of God says this, and and that was his rebuttal. And so, if Jesus, fully God, went to doctrine. To combat Satan, how much more should we be concerned about doctrine? Yeah. Right, uh, because most certainly we're more susceptible um, to to the teachings, as you said. I mean, Satan knows the scriptures better than we do, right? You know, and and, and talk about that temptation. Let me let me read for you Luke chapter four verse seven, where we read, "Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours." I was just using this as an example of um, of verses that are often taken out of context uh, with my church this past Sunday. And, and I was making the point that that verse, therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours, has shown up in like devotional calendars as the verse of the day um, to, to kind of teach this kind of prosperity type of thinking oh, yeah. to encourage that, hey, if you worship God, God will give it all to you. Well, guess what? That verse is not what God said. That's actually what Satan said. Satan said that to Jesus, that if you worship me, it shall all be yours. But again, if you don't know the scriptures, you might easily see that and say, hey, that's a great verse. We should share that with everyone. Well, you're basically sharing what Satan actually said to Jesus, not what Jesus actually said to us. Yeah, that, that's kind of frightening. Uh, well, <laughs> that's, frightening. Like, that's like if you open up one of the devotionals and you know the passages where two or three or more are gathered, there I am in your midst, yeah. and you're like, uh... You know, I just want to let you know, according to that verse, if two or three or more are gathered in that context, someone's getting disciplined because <laughs> that's, that's right. about church discipline. Communicated. Yep. That That is not uh, a verse you want to be quoting because you have a small church meeting, um, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. But and so, yes, the doctrines of grace, uh, Calvinism is a theological system. I don't know. Can we call it a theological system? Yeah, I, th I think so. Yeah. Framework, however you want to phrase right. that. That does have a high view of doctrine, but the reason it does is because Scripture has a high view of doctrine because that's what Scripture is. Right, right. right. Now, in terms of the claim that Calvinism produces a religion of the head and not the heart, uh, I, I will be the first to admit that every theological framework, right, every hermeneutical system, uh, every hermeneutic that we have has dangers on 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 both sides. So I yeah. think we would be foolish um, to pretend that it's uh, an ultimate guard against sin because Satan will use anything and everything he can. And I do think one of the heavier temptations to sin um, for those who really uh, love and want to focus on doctrine is the temptation 
into either legalism or um, I don't want to say the worship of knowledge, but that becoming more important uh, than the fundamental things uh, uh, in our relationship with Christ. That's a legitimate temptation. Satan certainly does use that. And so um, you can draw those very intellectual people who are not overly concerned with relationship with Christ, with holiness, with redemption, with sanctification, just because they enjoy the intellectual rigorousness of it. Absolutely, that is a temptation. And so, and and I think uh, this framework promotes that a little bit more. Whereas if you go to the other side, I would say Satan equally uses the temptation to disregard God's word and follow your feelings, which is equally dangerous. It's just the same side. It's two sides of the same coin. So, yes, I would acknowledge that that certainly is a temptation, but you can't um, look at someone who that may be true for an individual and say, oh, well, see, that's what Calvinism produces. That's just simply not true. We have to yeah. say, what what does it actually teach? Um, right? Because uh, well, most Arminians aren't truly Arminian, by the way. Um, and, and so, because I, Ar- Arminianism, I, I would say Arminianism, true Arminianism is genuinely heresy. Um, but I don't, I've never met a true Arminian. And we'll get into what Jacobus Arminius taught, um, and, and that will make more sense. I'll probably get, you know, raked over the coals for that comment. Uh, but let me just say, most Arminians only believe some of that system and not the whole of it because they don't know what it teaches. Just like a lot of Calvinists, a lot of young professing Calvinists still haven't learned all of the doctrines of grace, right? Um, And so, I've gone off on a rabbit trail. Let me bring it back in. The point is, yes, um, I, I think one of the dangers of Calvinism is to attract people who love rigorous study and um, intellectual engagement. And so, yes, uh, Satan will use that and attack the people there. But, but what you can't do is assume what's in someone's heart um, just purely based on their love for study or you know, rigor and diligence in the scriptures. That's, that's unfair. It's actually sinful. You're making a judgment against the motives of someone. Um, and so, yes, we acknowledge it's a danger, but you can't judge an entire theological system based on an individual. And it's going to come back to that a lot, I think. Yeah, let me, let me piggyback on that uh, with a couple of um, statements. Um, <clears throat> one, um, this is not to say that Armenians are not saved. All right, so you, you had mentioned that um, you don't even believe that most Armenians totally understand what Jacob Arminius uh, taught. And, uh, and, and that might be true, and I'd be interested in going through those points and thinking about that a little bit more. Um, but I would say that uh, for those that don't prescribe to what we call Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, however you call it, um, I don't automatically believe or, or assume that they don't know the gospel. And yeah. that's one of, the, one of the misconceptions as well, that, that somehow Calvinism itself is the gospel. No, Calvinism is not the gospel. Calvinism is simply our understanding of God's sovereignty and, and how he um, elects those who are going to be saved. Um, and and to, there are things connected to that, but um, but the, the the gospel itself, and you've mentioned it yourself when you're teaching your church to share the gospel, don't even bring the, up the word Calvinism. It's not necessary. You don't have to. Now, people might ask those questions. They're already familiar with the system, and they want to know where we stand. You know, at that point, I'll go ahead and reveal it. Um, but the 
message itself, the gospel message itself is about, is about the depravity of man. It's about the holiness of God. It's about Jesus Christ, the work that he came to accomplish. And then whether they believe that they need Jesus Christ for salvation and are willing to repent and believe in him. You know, that's really where, where we get to with, with the gospel itself. <clears throat> the, um, the, the second thing I want to point out, and I, I think for some people that accuse it of just being head knowledge only and, and not of the heart, um, some of it is, uh, I think, a misconception of, um, of election itself that, oh, because you've been chosen, you don't need to do anything. You can just, you know, why pray? Why, why evangelize? Why do anything? You know, it's, it's, it's essentially, you know, you're just parading around saying, look, I've been chosen, you know, and that's, I, I, I wouldn't say that that's a common misconception, but I've seen that. I've seen yeah. that come up. And, and so, <clears throat> let me give you um, just a, a quick uh, true story. Uh, as I was going through the fundamentals of the faith with my church, we had this uh, one lady, very, very dear lady, uh, tremendous servant of the church. She's uh, since then moved um, out of state to, to be with her grandkids. But um, but she was in that class with us, <clears throat> and, and she was asking me questions about Calvinism. And uh, and we were on the lesson of uh, uh, on the topic of salvation, and we're just going through the various verses that that go to <clears throat> I believe support how God is fully sovereign over those things. And um, she's really struggling with it. She hasn't come to the position where I'm at, but I believe that she knows the gospel. She knows the Lord Jesus Christ. She's a dear woman in Christ. But it was interesting as we went through the verses that uh, that we often use to support Calvinism, and especially those verses that talk about the depravity of man, which is going to be one of the points that we ultimately cover. Her response after going through those verses, she was in tears. And, uh, and, and I just asked her, so what are you thinking? She said, those verses really humble me. Hmm. And that's it right there. Okay, that, that, that's it right there. A, a true understanding of Calvinism never produces a prideful um, response saying, look at me, I've been elected. It should produce a response of humility to say, my God, I can't believe I've been elected. Yeah. yeah. Knowing what I know about, about myself. You know, and, and so uh, some of that is based upon, I think, a misunderstanding when people make that accusation. They misunderstand what uh, these, um, th- these kind of tenets of Calvinism really mean, how we get it, and, and what, uh, what, the, what the implication is for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe I should qualify my statement a little bit since I said Arminianism is heresy. Uh, I, I do think that. And I think if someone truly follows all of the beliefs of Jacobus Arminius, they are, in fact, outside of the Christian faith. Um, I want to be clear about that, but let me be clear about what I'm not saying. <laughs> um, I, I do not believe. So, for instance, one of the many egregious things that Arminius believed was that he rejected the idea of original sin. That, that's a huge thing. We'll get into that later, um, but I have not personally ever met someone who as- ascribes to some of the teachings of Arminius who would deny that we're born into sin, right? So, yeah. that's why I say um, most people are not genuinely Arminian. They just believe in some of the tenets of Arminianism, and, and yeah. I would say that is their saving grace. So, most of the people uh, that I would meet today, um, I do not believe they're outside of the faith. Um, w- when you talk about uh, what they believe about salvation, what they believe about Christ, um, it, you know, uh, they would communicate uh, a biblical doctrine that would not put them outside of the faith. Um, if someone truly followed all of Arminius's doctrine and beliefs, that would put them outside of the faith. But most people are not that. Yeah. And so, what we mm-hmm. call Arminians, and 
I, I mean, maybe there's a better way to, um, to to describe this. And so you, you'll get various theologians who will say, yes, Arminians are, are, are outside of the faith. Some will say they're not. I think, uh, I think to be more accurate, what we, what we would say is there are people who are Calvinists and those, are, and there are people who are against uh, Calvinism, no. but they're not really Arminians. Uh, no. They just subscribe no. to more of the tenets. And it's hard to always make that distinction without taking quite a bit of time. Um, but I, I hope that clarifies when I say uh, Arminianism is heresy, that's why. I just yeah. don't believe most people are that. Yeah. Uh, right. There's yeah. distinctions. Yeah. Um, we, we've got some, uh, you know, some uh, pastors that I met in Alaska who are not Calvinists, um, and I have no reason to believe they're not saved. Right. Um, they believe in original sin. They believe in. Um, salvation by uh, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, and, and while they, you may have to dig a little bit to get uh, the understanding of that, um, but it's still there. And our salvation comes, you know, by God's grace and through faith alone, nothing else. And so we, so we want to be careful when we say things like, um, you know, Arminianism is heresy. If we're going to say that, take the time to explain it, I think. Yeah. Um, and guys may come to, to different positions of that just based on what we know to be Arminianism today. Uh, anyway, uh, you, you reached on the last one um, that we're going to kind of deal with today, and that's uh, that Calvinism produces the belief that people can basically just do whatever they want or nothing because they've been chosen. God's going to elect who he's going to elect uh, there's nothing you can do about it, and so um, it, it produces Christians who just don't care and who live in sin. Uh, that, that's a very interesting thing. So we're talking about something called hyper-Calvinism on the one hand, right? Hyper-Calvinism, it's a real thing. Um, I have not personally ever met someone who would ascribe to that. I've heard uh, Vody Bauckham talk about meeting people. Um, I do have a personal friend of mine who actually struggled with the doctrines of grace because he worked with a guy who was, in fact, a hyper-Calvinist. So that's the closest I've gotten. And uh, let me just use that guy's story um, uh, to kind of demonstrate the difference here because it is important. So um, this guy worked on a, on, on a pipeline. He lives in Alaska. And there was a guy who professed to be a Christian who professed to be a Calvinist, but the guy by his account, um, would go out and often get drunk and would engage in just all kinds of activities no believer should be engaged in. Mm. And he actually questioned him and asked him why something to the effect of, you know, how do you feel like you can be a Christian and do these things? And the response was basically, well, he actually literally said, I'm a Calvinist. Um, and it was interesting because my friend said, oh, um, okay. And uh, when the guy asked him if it, what he believed, uh, he, he, that was a new term for him. He said, well, I'm, I'm not sure what you would call me, but I'm not that, <laughs> right? <laughs> no. it, because in his mind, um, understandably, if, if, if Calvinism produces people like you, I'm not that, right? No. Um, and so when he began getting into the scriptures and discovering what the doctrines of grace were, he had a little bit of a struggle at the beginning because he thought, well, I, I, that's not something I can be because I know that is against God, right? That yeah. is not a Christian life. In reality, this guy was what we would call a hyper-Calvinist. A hyper-Calvinist is someone who in, in some ways is just a fatalist, 
um, they they've looked at they've looked at these va- these passages and they've taken them out of the context of the whole counsel of the word of God, right? And so they've they've taken the passages in Ephesians and, and Romans that talk about being predestined, and they say, well, I'm saved. I can't lose my salvation, which then means I can sin. I can do whatever I want. Well, the problem with that is Paul addresses this very, very thing, right? Um, when he talks about uh, should we sin so that grace may abound all the more? By no means, uh, right? We have all of those verses. And so, yes, there are a group of people who would take these things uh, far beyond what Scripture means because they aren't reading the whole Scriptures. Um, clearly, no Christian believes that he can just live a wretched, sinful life and still think that he um, is saved. And no one that understands uh, Christianity would believe that kind of thing. But you meet someone like that, um, and, and they say they're a Calvinist. I can understand how you're like, yeah, Calvinism is bad. But yeah. again, we have to rein back our assessment of an entire theological framework just based on what an individual does in his own life. Because the chances are none of us represent our doctrine in our life as perfectly as we believe in our heads, right? Um, and, and you made that statement before. We believe far more perfectly than, than we live. This is why we have sanctification, right? This is why we have to be sanctified because we're, we're constantly growing in grace and being perfected. Uh, the other problem with um, hyper-Calvinists is oftentimes they do not believe in missionary work or in evangelizing. And again, that's because uh, they would take the position, well, God's chosen who he's chosen, um, and so uh, we don't have to evangelize. God's just going to save who he's going to save. Again, forgetting the whole counsel of God, God saves by using means, and the means primarily by which God uses to bring people to salvation is through the preaching of his word. Um, and so we have to um, take the whole counsel of God. So although a hyper-Calvinist may say uh, we don't have to do missionary work, we don't have to preach because God's going to save who he's going to save, we understand that the whole Bible would teach God uses means. And so we preach the gospel to everyone um, yes, I don't know who God is and isn't going to save, but that's not my role either. My role is to preach the gospel um, and ask God to save everyone that I meet and then leave the results up to him. So um, really understanding what Calvinism teaches um, would lead someone to have just as much zeal for missions and for evangelism as someone who doesn't proclaim to be a Calvinist the difference is I, Calvinism understands that God is the one who has to do all the work, and he's chosen who he's chosen. I don't get to know who that is, so I'm just going to preach the gospel to everyone. Um, and so outwardly, they should appear to be the same in terms of our actions, right? Um, and, and again, look at Paul Washer. Uh, I know John MacArthur has a great love for evangelism. There are tons of Calvinist guys out there who— um, I, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, preach like an, preach like an Arminian, sleep like a Calvinist or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm attributing that to the wrong person, but I like the phrase. Um, and so, again, the, the, really the point is you can't judge an entire theological framework just on the actions of one person. You've got to rein back your emotions 
and do a little bit of critical thinking and, and say, okay, well, I know that what that person is producing in their life is not godly or biblical, but what does the Bible actually teach? Um, maybe they're just misunderstanding or, or communicating something that they're not living out. Um, so that's got to be where we, where we start. Yeah, and this is um, some of this, at least, is a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. And, and I think it was J.I. Packer that uh, wrote the book, and I believe it's titled um, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, something similar to that yep. kind of title. And, and he brings out this point extremely well. When we think about the sovereignty of God, it can be abused to say, well, if God is sovereign, meaning he's in total control of everything, why do I need to do anything? I don't need to evangelize. I don't need to pray. He already knows what I up when I'm thinking. Um, I, I don't need to evangelize since he's already determined who he's going to save, um, those kinds of things. But we have to remember that sovereignty starts first with the fact that God is the highest in authority. He's in control because he's the highest in authority. And so, to the question of, well, if God is sovereign, why should we evangelize? Well, the answer is there. We evangelize because God is sovereign. We pray because God is sovereign. Um, and, and that's to say that God is sovereign. He is the highest in authority. And guess what? He calls us to do those things. And just as you mentioned, we don't know who's who the elect are. We don't know who he has chosen. Um, we have been called to be the mouthpiece. Um, to be the example, to to go out and and to to preach, and and so the, the the sovereignty of God is not an excuse for disobedience. Rather, it's the reason for obedience. So just flip that around and recognize that the reason why we call Jesus Lord is because He's our authority. Before the Great Commission, Jesus um, said that all authority has been given to me in earth and in heaven. Right. That's that's to say that he is completely sovereign when he ascended up into heaven and he's at the right hand of God, the father. That that means that he shares in the rule and authority with God, the father. So we obey and we follow him for those reasons specifically. John chapter eight, verse thirty one. And I just preached on this. But in verse thirty one, Jesus says this. He says this to those who were claiming to be his disciples. Said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, that's not to say that you earn your right to become a disciple, that you do all these works and then you become a disciple, but that's to say that if you are truly a disciple, you're going to show that by continuing in my word. And that goes back to the Old Testament. We think about the promise given to Ezekiel of replacing the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Jeremiah talks about how God's going to write his law upon our heart. And the result in both cases is that we will obey, that we will now freely obey God in a way that we couldn't before. So, the sovereignty of God can't be used as an excuse not to obey. Rather, it should be the reason why we do obey. Yeah. And if you look at history, um, mainstream Calvinism has never separated head from heart. I mean, historically, it's always been associated with a, a, a fervent zeal for personal obedience, for personal holiness, and for doctrinal fidelity. Um, and so, hi historically, it it has produced good fruit uh, biblically. And so, yes, we come across individuals who uh, may profess one thing um, and not live up to that. I mean, we, we have an entire book about this thing, right? Uh, this kind of thing. It's the book of Jude. It's that that one-page uh, book right before the book of Revelation. And the entire book um, is uh, Jude, which is who's the half-brother of Jesus, calling for the church to be contenders of the faith because there are those who have secretly crept in, as Jude has said. In other words, there are people who come into the church and they profess Christianity, but in reality, they're anything but. 
Um, and, and so you'll have guys who are uh, supposed Arminians who fit in that category. You'll have guys who are supposed Calvinists who fit in that category. You'll have Pentecostals and Charismatics and every other flavor who will fit in that category. Um, and, and so we just can't assume uh, a, an entire doctrinal framework based on the individual's life. It, it's not only is it disingenuous to do that, um, but that means that your belief and your faith is essentially built on your own thoughts and feelings rather than the truth of Scripture. And if you do that in one major area, in all likelihood, you do it in other important areas. Uh, and so we've got to rein ourselves back from doing that. And I think we're all guilty of that at times, right? Um, but but we need to be on guard from that. Well, as we wrap up today, um, so we're, we're going to go over more details over the next few weeks, exactly what the doctrines of grace uh, teach. What does Calvinism teach? Where is it in Scripture? Uh, and you can make up your own choice, um, but the goal is that you walk away at least knowing what both Arminianism is and what Calvinism is biblically. You know, what are the central tenets of belief um, of both of those? And so, uh, just to kind of lay out the the quick um, next few weeks in terms of Calvinism, we're going to cover what's referred to as TULIP. Um, I, I will say it's it's wrong to reduce all that uh, is the doctrines of grace as Calvinism into just five major points, but uh, we're going to focus on those because most of the objections are centered around those five central points. Um, the, the, the old acrostic is TULIP, which just simply stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, um, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. There's some other terms we're going to give that I think maybe are better to use. Um, limited atonement, sometimes people just get stuck on the word, right? No. Um, I think guys are, are using particular redemption or something to that effect today. No. Um, uh, irresistible grace, uh, people are using the term effectual grace. It's the same thing. Maybe it's less initially offensive. Uh, but anyway, so we'll go through TULIP, um, and, and at least you'll know if you're professing Calvinist what you should be believing, um, and if you're not, you'll, you'll at least be able to say, I understand what the actual doctrine is. I understand where they're getting it from Scripture, and then you'll just be left with the choice um, to, to believe what God's Word says. Uh, and so that's that's what we're hoping to to leave you with at the end. I, any ending remarks before we close today? No, that's uh, that, that's a good closing. And uh, hopefully, those of you who are listening, uh, we're not trying to demonize one side or or make the other side look like they're perfect. We're just trying to um, address at least some of the common misconceptions that that come up. And then another one, and, and we didn't address it was. Addresses. We can talk about this more uh, next week. Is this idea that it that it only existed over the last five hundred years? Um, well, we can talk more about that uh, that next time as well. But hopefully, um, this has been helpful. And and again, we're we're not following a man. We are following Christ. We we just simply believe that what's been communicated uh, by this framework accurately um, represents what we see in scriptures. Yeah, you know, every week um, you. You go to church and you trust your pastor um, to do the exact same thing that uh, John Calvin did, right? Um, you, you you don't say you're you're following your pastor, but you certainly are following his teachings. Well, why do you do that? 
Well, no. you submit to his teachings because he's he's teaching out of the word of God. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's the first kind of paradigm shift that people need to make if they're opposed to Calvinism specifically. Um, you know, when we look at those teachings, we're really just looking at someone who's exegeting the scripture and we're looking, we're saying, okay, did he exegete this rightly? Um, did he preach this rightly? You know, right. just like you should be doing your pastor every week. You know, he opens the Bible, he preaches from the text. And you say, uh, I follow, you know, I, I go to so-and-so church and I sit under their teaching. You're not saying you worship Eki. Um, you're not saying you worship me. Um, heaven forbid, no pastor wants to be worshiped if he's a good one. Um, I, you know, we worship God alone. Um, but you're saying, okay, yes, I see his teaching. It's from the Bible and this is right and this is good. And so I'm going to obey that. Um, and, and that's the same you know, when we talk about Calvinism. So, hope this is helpful. Um, next week, actually, we have a very special guest next week, but I'm not going to mention who it is just yet. Um, I would just say it's someone very near and dear to uh, Grace Community Church and Grace to you. You don't want to miss next week's episode. And uh, until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.